The scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 to 32. And Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Lo, he comes forth to the water. And say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon you and upon your servants and upon your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they are. And I will set apart in that day the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the land. And I will set a ransom between my people and your people. By tomorrow this sign shall be. And Yahweh did so. And there came grievous swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into the house of his servants. And in all the land of Egypt, the land was corrupted by reason of the swarms of flies. And Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice your God in the land. And Moses says, said, It is not right to do so, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to Yahweh our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, and will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahweh our God as he shall command us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to Yahweh your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Entreat for me. And Moses said, Behold, I go out from you and I will entreat Yahweh that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh deal, deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated Yahweh. And Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. And he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. And Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for your commands that come to us. And indeed, that you would direct us in the truth this day. May your spirit help us to understand this, your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first definition of swarm, as found in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is a great number of honeybees emigrating together from a hive in company with a queen to start a new colony elsewhere. A colony of honeybees settled in a hive. Then a second definition, a large number of animate or inanimate things massed together and usually in motion. There are various books, TV shows, or movies with swarm in the title, some of which tell a story of Mother Nature's revenge on mankind, or others using it in a symbolic way to reflect the actions of people or a group of people. There's even a Marvel comic book character called Swarm who was Fritz von Meyer, a Nazi scientist who discovered some bees apparently affected by radiation from a meteorite, of course. Uh, and seeking to harness the, the killer instinct of the bees, they began to swarm over van, uh, von Meyer, killing him. In the midst of his death throes, his consciousness shredded, dissipating into the swarm of bees. Thus, von Meyer became an aggregate being, a living embodiment of the swarm, with his own scientific mind added to the mutant intelligence of the multitude of bees. 
His character looks like a human made up of dozens of bees. And at one point, he turned his attention to Spider-Man, claiming that spiders and bees are naturally are, are naturally deadly enemies. Comics largely serve as a modern mythology, and some of this stuff can be fun, fun to think about. But but certainly, God is more creative still. And the account of the fourth plague that is before us this morning is no exception, even as the first three plagues have been. The creation serves its Lord, does it does His bidding. And even as we witness yet another act of decreation upon the land of Egypt, another plague that comes as judgment upon Egypt for its idolatry and sin, Yahweh continues to set himself apart, continues to display his sovereign power and authority. Here in the fourth plague, we begin the second cycle of plagues, which consists of plagues four through six, and follows the, the threefold pattern uh, for the world, the, the three-decker universe of of water, land, and heaven, or the skies. And what's the indicator that the new cycle is starting? Well, the explicit instruction by Yahweh to Moses to go to Pharaoh in the morning, or early in the morning. This was the case for the first plague, and will be the case again with the seventh plague. And while we might wonder how this fourth plague is associated with water, we simply need to note where Moses goes to announce this plague against Pharaoh, by the water, by the river connecting this plague to the bottom level of the three-decker universe. There are aspects of this plague that might remind us of some of the previous plagues, and that's fine. But once again, we do well to take note of what is said and also what isn't said in comparison to the other plagues, and even to note what the writer spends his time recounting. Notice how much space is given to the conversation that takes place between Pharaoh and Moses in verses 25 to 30. That tells us something of the importance of that exchange and even the theology that's to be derived from it. So let's begin to look at some of some more of the details and, and make our way through the text, as is our custom, and, and be so directed in our understanding of the Lord and His Word that our faith may be spurred to greater allegiance and obedience to Christ, our Savior and King. We've already noted the command for Moses to go to Pharaoh early in the morning by the water, by the river. Whether or not Aaron also went, we're not explicitly told, but recall that he has a less prominent role after the first cycle of plagues. And what is Moses to declare? Thus says Yahweh, send out my people and they may serve me. For if you do not send out my people, behold, I will send on you and on your servants and on your people and on your houses the swarm and shall be filled the houses of Egypt with the swarm and also the ground which they are upon it. And once again, we hear Yahweh's command for Pharaoh to send out Israel in order that they may serve, that they may worship him. And notice the overlap in wording, which, which gets obscured in English, in our English translations. But two times, Yahweh mentions that Pharaoh is to send out Israel, but if he doesn't, then Yahweh is going to send the swarm. It's the same word. So if Pharaoh doesn't send, then Yahweh will. And most transla uh, translations read that it's a swarm of flies. Uh, the text more literally says the swarm. If you're reading the New King James, you'll notice that of flies is in italics, indicating that it doesn't appear in the original text. The New American Standard Version reads swarm of, uh, swarms of insects. We actually don't know for sure what the swarm, uh, if the swarm is specifically flies or not. Uh, attributing the swarm to flies seems to be the result of following the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which renders the word as dog fly, which 
uh, would be fairly equivalent to what we call a horse fly. So some type of biting or stinging fly. And that could very, very well be. But again, we, we don't know for certain. The two references to this plague in the Psalms both simply use the word swarm as well. So it could be they're flies. They are flies that we are to think of here, or even a mix of insects. Uh, we know isn't, it isn't locust uh, because they constitute the eighth plague. But there are any number of other swarming creatures that could make up this plague. Also notice the, the, that the threefold language conveying that the swarm will be on Pharaoh, his servants, and his people. Uh, appears and then and then there's this interesting emphasis upon the houses that the swarms will be in or on the houses and even fill the houses of Egypt. Similar to the plague of frogs, it seems there won't be anywhere uh, to go to escape the swarm. But the text also adds and also the ground which they are upon it. Now this this seems to indicate that the swarm will will also be all over the ground and any ground where the Egyptians might be. But what's the significance of this detail? Well, first of all, we need to distinguish that the word ground that's used here is Adama, uh, which closely relates to the word Adam or man, and is a word we find used with some frequency and significance in the opening chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 1, it's used particularly in reference to man being uh, to man and the beast being made from the ground on the sixth day of creation. In chapter 2, we see the ground as an area in which man will be called to work. And in chapter 3, that work in relation to the ground is made more difficult for man on account of sin, and the ground is even cursed. What the swarm on the ground in, in Egypt may more specifically indicate is that the work is going to come to a complete halt. That the, the Egyptians will not be able to be productive in any form or fashion on account of this plague. But then in verse 22, there's a new wrinkle in the story. The, the rhythm of the text changes somewhat, doesn't it? And I will cause to be distinct in that day the land of Goshen, where my people are dwelling upon it, so that not shall be there a swarm, so that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. So here, Yahweh makes a clear distinction between his people and the, you know, in Pharaoh, the people of Pharaoh, between Israel and Egypt. We are probably right to conclude that Israel is not immune. Uh, from the first three plagues, but now they're going to be spared. And what is the purpose of making this distinction? That Pharaoh may know, which brings us back to that theme of Pharaoh's claim of not knowing Yahweh early on in these accounts, and the use of the various plagues in order that Pharaoh may know who Yahweh is. But notice specifically the extra detail that Yahweh is in the midst of the land. Which land? Oh, perhaps we are to read Goshen since that was the land just mentioned. And, and it could be that Yahweh is saying he's in Goshen. That's for the reason he'll be unaffected by this plague because he's there and his people are there. But even, even Goshen itself is within the larger land of Egypt. And although there's distinction being made here, the best understanding is to probably view Yahweh as stating that he's in the midst of the land of Egypt. And what's the implication of that? Well, that he's invaded the land that he's present, and that Pharaoh must come to terms with that. Then notice verse 23. And I will set redemption between my people and between your people, for tomorrow shall be this sign. Now some of the English translations read distinction or ransom between my people, but the word is redemption. So how should we understand what's being said here? 
The most straightforward way seems to be that it, it simply parallels what was just mentioned, that Israel won't suffer this plague. They'll be redeemed or saved from it. And Yahweh is clear to declare that this will take place tomorrow. Well, we've heard that word before, even as Pharaoh set off the cessation of the plague of frogs until tomorrow. Here, Yahweh announces definitively when the swarms will arrive. Now, let's, let's take a moment and consider what the writer has omitted when we're comparison, uh, com- comparing it with this account with what we've read before. First, we're not told that Moses actually went in and delivered the message, though we know he did. It's just assumed that we know that he did so. Second, we aren't told how Pharaoh received the message. But we know he didn't send out Israel as Yahweh commanded on account of what we read next. Third, there's no mention of a staff being used in relation to the plague, which is in keeping with the second cycle, where it is, uh, it's Yahweh who clearly acts, bringing about each plague. Therefore, we read in verse 24, And Yahweh did thus, and came a heavy swarm to the house of Pharaoh, and the house of his servants, and in all the land of Egypt. And ruin was the land from before the face of the swarm. So the swarm was heavy, which is the adjectival form of the same word that's used in verse 32 to describe Pharaoh's heart becoming heavy or hardened. Everywhere the swarm goes, it brings ruin. It spoils the land. It brings destruction. In what capacity exactly, we don't know for sure, but the results are devastating. Interestingly enough, this same term is used in Genesis 18.28 in the midst of Abraham's appealing on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah when Yahweh says, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. That word destroy is the same one that's used here in Exodus. Of this plague in Psalm 78.45, Asaph declares, He sent among them a swarm and devoured them. Now that's giving the impression that the swarm is eating the Egyptians and the land. Whether any deaths were caused by this plague, we don't know for certain. But we need to remember that the severity has been significantly ramped up as we've begun the second cycle of plagues. Uh, And it was just not a matter of simply needing to set out fly traps and bug zappers. You know, this, this plague is devastating. And that's further indicated in the appeal that Pharaoh makes and the exchange that takes place with Moses in verse 25 and following. Verses 25 and 26. And Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron, and he said, Go sacrifice your God in the land. And Moses said, It would not be directed aright to do thus. For an abomination to the Egyptians, we will sacrifice to Yahweh our God. If we sacrifice an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? So Pharaoh gives permission for Israel to sacrifice to their God. He's, he's clearly being magnanimous here. He may even be recognizing Yahweh as a god of after a fashion, perhaps one that can be added to the, the pantheon of Egyptian gods. But, but Moses objects on the grounds that the type of sacrifices that Israel would offer would be an abomination to the Egyptians. That they, they'd be abominable to them, which would result in their stoning the Israelites. Now remember, Moses knows Egyptian culture. He understands how it works. He, he knows their religion. And this isn't an unwarranted concern on Moses' part. We can only speculate if Pharaoh was seeking to suddenly kill off Israel or make things worse for them by suggesting this route for worship. It's also interesting that stoning would be the specific means of death. But what's with Israel's sacrifices being an abomination to the Egyptians? Well, to help us sort uh, that out, we have to go back to Genesis 46. When Joseph brings his family to Egypt... 
And what do we read at the end of the chapter? Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls and says, what is your occupation? What is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers. In order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So it's the same word. So the sacrificing of sheep or other animals Israel would have used for their sacrifices would have been an abomination to the Egyptians. And then what does Moses further argue in verse 27? A journey of three days we must go into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahweh our God as he spoke to us. So Moses is reiterating the original command he'd received back in chapter 3 and verse 18 at the burning bush and had asked of Pharaoh at the beginning of chapter 5 and alluded to in chapter 7 and verse 16. But let's ask, why Israel can't just worship in Egypt? And for one, because of the threat of stoning by the Egyptians, as we just heard. And for two, because Yahweh had given the command uh, to his people to worship him in the wilderness. And that must be obeyed. And what's implicit in Israel needing to to go out of Egypt and into the wilderness? That there needs to be separation in order to worship. We we see this later in Israel's history, and there's certainly a sense that it should be true in our experience as well. Verse 28, Pharaoh said, I will send you to sacrifice to Yahweh your God in the wilderness, only only to be far you shall not be far to go. Entreat for me. So Pharaoh still seems to be hedging his bets, so to speak, saying he'll, well, he'll let them go in the wilderness, but maybe indicating that he doesn't want them to go a three days journey. But he seems to be making some concession, but then is urgent in his command to Moses to entreat for him, to pray for him. This rightly reminds us of Pharaoh making a similar request of Moses during the second plague. So how does Moses reply here? Verse 29, And Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will entreat to Yahweh that he may turn aside the swarm from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only do not do again to deceive, to not let go the people to sacrifice to Yahweh. And just as Moses interceded on Pharaoh's behalf to turn aside the frogs, so now he does here in relation to the swarm, and he tells Pharaoh what he's going out to do. And notice again the threefold use of Pharaoh, servants, and people. And when is this going to happen? Tomorrow. So there's that time frame again, even as we heard earlier. And this time, Moses also further warns Pharaoh not to deceive or or mock by not keeping his word to allow the people to sacrifice to Yahweh. Of course, we're not surprised to read what happens next, but notice the repetition of language in verse 30. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated to Yahweh. You know, that almost seems like unnecessary information. But there it is, part of the emphasis the text is making. And as the plague clearly came from Yahweh in verse 24, it was his doing. What do we then read in verse 31? And Yahweh did according to the word of Moses and turned aside the swarm from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people, and not one remained. Again, we hear that triplet of Pharaoh's servants and people. But what a fascinating expression that Yahweh acts according to the word of Moses. That's a remarkable statement. 
And while we can theologically express that it was part of God's will to act in this way, and that's perfectly true, and that Moses is in no way of controlling God, what, what a beautiful expression of Yahweh's relationship with Moses and his willing condescension and how the Holy Spirit is presenting God to us. Yahweh acts according to the prayers, the intercession of his servant Moses, according to the word that he'd spoken to Pharaoh. Yahweh brings that to pass. Not a single fly, a single insect of the swarms remained or was left alive. All of them, the innumerable number of them, all of them were gone. We're not told how they were removed. We're not told that they you know, dropped dead on the land and then had to be cleaned up, which I wouldn't guess would be the case. Rather, the text seems to convey that they completely disappeared. And while we don't know how long this episode lasted, given the fact that there are two tomorrows mentioned, that means, at least symbolically, we have a three-day period represented in this plague, which is interesting to think about. But once again, we're not surprised to read in the final verse, And Pharaoh caused to be heavy his heart also this time, and he did not send out the people. But Pharaoh is obstinate and duplicitous, and even rightly reminds us of the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, disregarding the evidence that he was the Messiah. And let this serve as a helpful reminder to all of us that the, the, the gospel isn't simply about presenting well-reasoned arguments, that it isn't about promoting your best life now and convincing people of that, as if information is simply what people are lacking and is what they need in order to follow Christ. No, it's a work of God the Father through the Holy Spirit who draws men unto Christ. It's His transforming work in hearts and minds that is necessary. And yes, He uses means. And that in no way discounts our call to faithfulness to proclaim and present the truth. But let us not be naive that information alone will guarantee positive results. You know, think about it. Peter and Stephen virtually preached the same sermon in the book of Acts. And the result of Peter's is thousands being converted. And the result of Stephen's is that he's stoned to death. Was Stephen somehow less faithful? Of course not. He proclaimed the truth and left the result to God. Similarly, was Jeremiah unfaithful in his ministry as a prophet ending up in a pit in Egypt? No, of course not. For that matter, was Jesus unsuccessful since he too was put to death? Well, of course not. But there are plenty who rejected him, as we clearly read in the Gospels, particularly among the religious leaders. What's more, consider how Jesus instructs the disciples in John 16 about the challenges they would face in their own ministry. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You know, imagine murdering an apostle and thinking it was service to God. And yet that was the experience for some of them. Misguided religious sensibilities can be pretty dangerous. It was the case for Israel and Egypt, as Moses points out to Pharaoh. It was the case for the apostles and continues to be the case for the church today. You know, jihadist Islamists are a particularly obvious application of this, but Islam isn't the greatest threat in our society at present. Rather, we have the religion and ideologies born out of Enlightenment thinking that have found fruit in various ways, whether socialism, uh, Marxism, liberalism, in the theological sense in particular, 
feminism, transgenderism, critical race theory, climate change, wokeism, if that's even a word, and the various manifestations of what amount to false religions. There are manifestations of these trains of thought within the church, all under the guise of love or loving your neighbor, whose promoters would claim the teaching of Christ to support their position. And what's happening to conservative Bible-believing Christians who are seeking to be obedient to Christ and His Word? They're being persecuted, demonized, shunned, canceled, etc. Over the last several years, the disparity has become clear and the animosity more obvious. But there are plenty who think they're doing society a service by seeking to silence those who would speak the truth regarding abortion, the definition of a man or a woman, or other basic creational norms that societies have accepted as realities for hundreds of if not thousands of years, of course, rooted in the, the truth of the scriptures and God's creation of man and the world and so forth. See, our present time is not a time for compromise or conciliation with these idols, but a time for a continued resolve in our fidelity to the command, commands of Jesus and his word. Another implication of the story before us this morning, which was alluded to earlier, is the need for us to separate ourselves from the world in order to worship. How do we do that? Well, by coming here. And if we had our own church building and sanctuary, that separation would be even more pronounced. Theologically, of course, we believe that we worship on Mount Zion, even as we're instructed in Hebrews 12. And so by faith, we're not simply in Franklin, Tennessee right now, but in heaven. But there's still separation taking place. You know, none of you are in the comfort of your home right now, and you've made the effort to be here in order to participate in actions that no other entity or organization upon the earth has been given. And the separation also serves the purpose to remind us of our calling as priests, kings, and prophets, and how our first priority is to Jesus, our King, and to His kingdom, and in the service we render unto Him in the various callings that we have. We understand that our families are outposts of the kingdom in the towns, cities in which we live. And all of that gets rightly oriented and reoriented here in covenant renewal before the throne of grace. We are rightly reminded of who we are as those who are in Christ, who have been redeemed by Him, and we recount His work each week. We rehearse the great salvation that is ours, that has been achieved by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the reordering of the world that is taking place under the rule and reign of Christ and the work, and then the work with which we've been entrusted to that end. And then lastly, part of our calling that's expressed here is that of intercessor, of entreating the Lord on behalf of rulers and magistrates, even when they're tyrants. Moses serves that purpose, even as part of his prophetic office, as a counselor to God. And what does Yahweh do? He acts according to Moses' word. Well, in similar fashion, when we come and intercede and even pray, pray here as Paul instructs in 1 Timothy. First of all, then I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Our prayers are to that end that we may lead these kinds of lives. And of course, when rulers don't rule in ways that make that possible, then that complicates things a bit. But still, our prayers are to these ends, even as we recognize that it's the Lord's place to deal with rulers of various stripes 
who are being disobedient to his word. And in this prophetic role, we cannot compromise. Now, if we look to Joseph when he was in Egypt as a model, and we should, he didn't compromise. He was faithful to the Lord. He was faithful to Potiphar, particularly in rejecting the advances of Potiphar's wife. He was also faithful to Pharaoh and proclaimed the truth to him. See, remember, prophets speak to kings. But what's a danger or temptation with that role? To not speak the whole truth. To hold back, to make concessions in some way because of the fact that you're speaking to powerful people. Also, most rulers live in cities where there are more people, more ideas, more cultures mixing with one another. This is even the kind of dynamic that we find in an empire. And this doesn't mean cities are bad. You know, don't go away thinking that's what I'm saying because I'm not. And certainly the church is called to serve in cities just as it's called to serve in suburbs, counties, villages, rural areas, and even in small towns. But we need to recognize the particular dynamics, dangers, or temptations that come in ministering in this context. As one theologian observes, the sinful tendency in all cosmopolitan civilizations is syncretism. The tendency to compromise and meld everything together in a false bond. The spirit resists this false bonding and calls us to hold out for true bonding after the unbelievers convert. You know, again, think of Joseph or even of Daniel, who was another Joseph, or even Esther, who lived in a similar context. True witness means say, saying who you are and serving the powers. Again, that's what we see in Joseph. That's what we see in Daniel. So let us continue to cultivate and pursue this prophetic identity to the glory of Christ's name and kingdom. Let us not hesitate to say who we are, to readily declare our allegiance to Jesus Christ and His Word, uncompromising in our commitment to the authority of Scripture for all of life. And let us not forget to roll up our sleeves and continue in the work in the service, in the life of self-denial and cross-bearing, in the life lived out for having been in here in the presence of our King. And let us believe and not doubt that it's through such witness and work that the Holy Spirit transforms the world. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this story in Exodus that comes to us that impresses upon our hearts, lives, even our imaginations, the truth of your word. Indeed, guide us and direct us in it to be all the more faithful in the day in which you have called us to live. May we indeed uh, seek first your kingdom and its righteousness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.